Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Yesterday, local MPP Donna Skelly said there was no money from the provincial government for Hamilton's 2026 Commonwealth bid. P.J. Mercanti from that bid group joins us to talk about it. Ontario's fight against balancing COVID-19 as well as efforts to jumpstart the economy have highlighted some pretty big communication problems between the government and the population. We'll get into that with you. And tonight marks the vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. What can we expect? We'll discuss that too. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday we talked about the Commonwealth Games bid for the city of Hamilton. We all know the history, of course. It was supposed to be uh, the 100th anniversary games in 2030. Uh, and uh, that's how the bid team got together, and that's what they were shooting for. They pivoted to 2026 at the request of the Commonwealth Committee, the International Committee. Uh, but there's a problem with that. And they're going yesterday, uh, we heard that the provincial government will not be putting one penny towards the bid for 2026 for Hamilton. Uh, Local MPP Donna Skelly explains. Rather than misleading anybody or letting this drag on and on and on and and sucking all the oxygen out of the room and and forcing council to deal with, you know, these these big asks without any real meat on the bones, let's deal with it. And what is the big issue? Can we do, can we support both international events in one year? And the answer is no. So, there we are. So where does this put the bid? Uh, they were supposed to, the bid committee that is, supposed to appear before City Council today to give an update. Apparently, they've withdrawn the request to appear before Council. P.J. Mercanti is part of the uh, the bid group, of course. He's the CEO of Carmen's Group, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about what's going on and next steps. P.J., thanks for the time. Glad you could be with us today. No, thank you, Bill. Did uh, this blindside you, this announcement? Uh, well, we were taken aback by MPP Skelly's uh, public comments about the games, uh, you know, in that we had not yet had an opportunity to present our full financial plan to the province. And so we decided late yesterday to postpone our appearance to council, given the meeting uh, that occurred yesterday evening with the premier, as we wanted some, you know, clarity around the province's position. And we were pleased that Premier Doug Ford took the time to meet personally with community leaders from Hamilton last night to better understand the opportunity for the games in Ontario and to make it clear that, you know, a discussion around the games it has to respect the interest of taxpayers and the need to focus on pandemic recovery. And so we had a delegation of regional leaders attend that meeting yesterday, including Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, Joe Mancinelli, who you know, the leader mm-hmm. of Luna. Angelo Coletta of Coletta Group, and Lou Forporti, who's our big chairperson uh, and the managing partner at Hamilton's Gowling WLG office. And, and we were appreciative that these individuals took time to engage with the Premier to provide him with a more fulsome briefing of the opportunity. And, and my understanding, Bill, is that the meeting was very productive and constructive with a resolve to continue the dialogue with the Premier's office in the province around the opportunity to host in 2026, and that nothing is definitively off the table. Including 2026? Uh, that's that's uh, my the, understanding. The, the, the statement I've got here, PJ, from uh, Ivana Yelich, who was a, a spokesperson from the Premier's office, says, we encourage the city and bid group to consider pursuing this opportunity in 2027 or beyond in Hamilton and would entertain those discussions with the parties involved. So it, that indicates to me that they're not in, interested in, in, in 2026, but if you want to postpone this for a year, let's sit down and talk. That, that's the, what the sense I'm getting here. So obviously that statement, I think, was released at some point yesterday. And, and yeah. the, the information that, so that I was uh, shared by the, the, the individuals that were at the meeting with the Premier you know, essentially stated that, you know, that nothing is off the table. 2026, you know, is very much on the table, as is 2027, uh, is my understanding. And, and, and we, you know, we believe that the concerns that the province brought up around costs, uh, you know, are premature in that we have not yet presented a budget to the province. And our goal, Bill, is to make this the least expensive multi-sport games in, in modern history you know, leveraging private sector investments at a level that has never been seen uh, in previous Canadian games. And so, so we, you know, we remain hopeful and optimistic that, uh, you know, that 26 is still on the table and, and we still seek to share information about our bid to the public, uh, perhaps at the next GIC. Uh, but a lot of the information that we were going to share today uh, is available on the city's GIC agenda website and it'll, it'll be available on the Hamilton 2026 
website shortly. Uh, but we have some, you know, exciting information to share about our pivoted bid plan that, you know, that shows us the more economical games and more affordable games. And so, you know, so we're still hopeful that uh, the province will, you know, listen at to, to, you know, to the opportunities that still exist. Uh, and, and, you know, we were encouraged that, you know, the Premier uh, took time to, to meet with, uh, to meet with the, you know, our regional leaders who are behind this bid. And, and, and so we still feel hopeful that uh, positive momentum can continue on 2026. All right, uh, the elephant in the room here, of course, is the the World Cup of Soccer uh, that is scheduled to be in North America. And, and the, the proposal, of course, that we heard was that some of the games were going to be in Canada, not a lot of them, but Toronto is, is obviously Vancouver and Montreal were the sites for this. Uh, now, I, I, I don't know if you can you know, disclose everything that you and, the, and uh, your group and the Premier talked about, but the stories I'm hearing from my sources indicated that FIFA, the governing body for the World Soccer, of course, essentially told the province, if you, you can't have two games, said, if you do that, we're taking the games away from Toronto. We're going to put them someplace else, probably in some American city. Uh, so it sounds to me as if FIFA basically put a gun to the head of the province and said, it's either us or Commonwealth Games. You can't do both. Uh, so that pretty much forced their hand. Have you heard that story? So I, I'm not sure, Bill, and, and again, I'm uh, you know don't quote me on it, but but it, you know I'm not sure if that was necessarily FIFA directly that made that uh, comment to the province. Uh, you know, from from our perspective, you know, we don't understand what the issue with FIFA is, and that it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a binary choice of either this game or, or, or those games. You know, from a timing perspective, there is no direct overlap, as FIFA events would take place. In June, Commonwealth yeah. Games in August, so nearly a two-month difference in two different cities, and and we understand that the federation is committed to working collaboratively with FIFA, and at the federation level, there has been positive interactions and dialogue, and and we see this as being an opportunity to align with FIFA around de- delivering, you know, an extraordinary summer of sport in Ontario in 2026, and so so we're hopeful that. The discussions that are happening at the international federation level between FIFA and the Commonwealth Games Federation, you know, yield positive results. And and so, you know, we don't believe that there necessarily, you know, was, uh, you know, was a, an ultimatum made to the to the province. And so we're we're still in the process, Bill, of of, of fleshing that out and, and, and getting a better. Um, you know, better understanding of, you know, what the specific issue is, you know, because obviously folks that are going to, you know, want to attend a World Cup event are not not going to go to a World Cup because they want to go to a Commonwealth sport two months later. So so we still believe that there that there is a, a tremendous opportunity to align the, the two, the two, these two multinational uh, events, uh, you know, for the benefit of, of Ontario and, and showcasing, you know, how, how great of a host the province of Ontario could be for, for major sporting events. So, so we, we believe that there, that there is a route forward and a path forward to resolve whatever the issues are with FIFA, and we're hopeful that that gives the province some, some peace of mind in, in moving forward around a potential games in the Commonwealth Games in 2026. I know that Steve Milton, the spectator, actually was reporting on it in his column today a similar line that, that FIFA is the one that's pressuring uh, the organization here. But you're... you're point is is well taken because that's the first reaction i had too pj they're not happening at the same time as a matter of fact the world cup the the four game the games that are scheduled for toronto is going to happen like you say three months before the the commonwealth games if they were to take place so i don't understand why they're even concerned about this it's not going to have a negative impact on them or any kind of an impact has, has there been any discussion at all with not just your group but with the the commonwealth international group and fifa about this so my understanding is that there was a letter that uh, that Dame Louise Martin had prepared uh, and sent to FIFA's uh, leader, uh, Mr. Infantino. So, so at the federation level, there has been uh, dialogue. Uh, you know, my understanding is that it's you know been you know well received and positive, uh, positive dialogue. And so you know, so in the coming days and weeks, you know, we certainly uh, you know certainly expect there to be to be more. Uh, robust dialogue with FIFA with FIFA directly, uh, and just another comment on you know on FIFA World Cup Canada Ontario. Uh, you know our understanding is that Canada gets ten games. You know that would be distributed between Edmonton, Montreal, and Toronto. So so you know we know that that that, that the country of Canada will get the, these ten games. 
uh, the distribution of which which is still, you know, to be determined. But, you know, we don't believe there to be a conflict even with regards to commercial rights or sponsorships because, you know, obviously FIFA has their, their you know, a list of, of international, you know, sponsors, corporate sponsors that are different than Commonwealth Games sponsors. So, so we genuinely don't, uh, you know, don't see the, you know, the technical uh, overlaps or concerns. And so we remain hopeful that, that a positive route forward can, can happen where the province can, can get behind and support both sets of games and, and, and recognizing that a Commonwealth Games will leave a significant legacy uh, in the, the city of Hamilton and the entire region of southwestern Ontario uh, where, you know, where you know, there will be affordable housing as part of this. There will be social impacts experienced uh, out of this and other economic benefits that are tremendous and, and, and can't be, you know, can't be pushed to the side. So, so we're hopeful that, that the, you know, the hard work that our bid team and our group has done around 2026, that, that we could work collaboratively with FIFA and, and, you know, and have a, you know, have a great summer of sports uh, with World Cup and Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth Games events. What surprises me about this is uh, I'm going back and forth with Mayor Fred about this uh, just the other day, and and as you know, uh, the Premier was in town about a week and a half or so ago, and they did have a conversation, and, and the Commonwealth bid came up, and uh, the Mayor told me that the, the Premier was quite interested in this and said, yeah, let's let's get into the details about this. Uh, something seems to have happened in the last 10 days to have changed that, and I'm wondering if FIFA is the one that's, that's twisting some arms here. And and again, that's that's kind of above you your bid group. It's really the international committee that that has to deal with that. Uh, and uh, and I, I'm not sure how that's going to be resolved. It's, FIFA, as you know, PJ is a very powerful body, and uh, I, I can understand that if they want to exert pressure, you have to listen to it. For sure, and 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 you know we we certainly you know appreciate that in the, in the last you know few weeks that there's been you know confusion around communications and 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 other items uh, you know related to. To messages being delivered, but you know I'm Bill, an, an eternal optimist. So I, you know I obviously look for the silver lining and the route forward. That you know, and 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 I'm delighted that you know as of yesterday evening, positive discussions with the premier in the province occurred, where you know the premier was learning new information about about our bid and was you know very positive and and, and welcoming to hear that information, including the fact that a 2026 Commonwealth Games would be far less expensive then a 2030 games and just one item to note is you know and, and this this information will be made public shortly uh you know and it may some of it may even be online online right now but you know these games would be more economical for both the city of hamilton and the province and the federal government our our group has worked hard in reducing the overall expense of the games and, and specifically citing the capital venues you know the capital plan uh you know that that we're releasing shows that we're reducing the overall investment from 550 million to 250 million, which is which is you know 300 million dollar savings. So on the aggregate, a 2026 Commonwealth Games would cost the municipality of Hamilton approximately 100 million dollars less than a 2030 Games, and it would save the federal government and provincial government a lot more money as well. And so so we're hopeful. That when all of the information, you know, is is fully understood by the the city, by the province, that that everybody will see. Okay, wait a minute here. There is this is affordable. This is respectful to taxpayers. There is no conflict, direct conflict with World Cup that we could have World Cup games and Commonwealth games taking place at the same time. So so we remain hopeful that there is a path forward and a route forward uh, to 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 leverage each of these events and. And we feel confident that once the city learns more about, you know, the fact that these games would would generate a positive economic, you know, spinoff for the for the you know the municipality, that you know that there wouldn't be any ongoing operating expenses borne out of these games, that a, a legacy fund would be created to to help the ongoing operating costs of some of these new or refurbished facilities. We're, we're confident that if that will change the narrative in a positive way. Well, let me, let me ask you about that. I, I know our time is tight here. We're just about out of time. But there's a couple of points, PJ, I, I want to cover, and I, I, I need to get your input into this. Uh, the suggestion from the Premier's office, and this is before, of course, they had the meeting with, the, with your group yesterday with the Premier, uh, to postpone the games to 2027. Is there an appetite to do that? So our understanding is that nothing is off the table, that all options are open. 
Uh, and so, so obviously, I can't speak uh, definitively to the Federation's position on 2027, other than to, to share that you know, they have been open-minded. Uh, and, and, and my so that's, so that's a possibility that, yeah. then. The that, other that, question, the other question yeah. is, is if the province says, look, it, we love you guys, it's a great bid, but we just can't do this, is the bid dead then for 2026? Uh, Without well, provincial we, money, we where do you at, go? For sure. So we would seek direction from the province and, and, and get greater clarity on their position. Uh, and and from there pivot accordingly, right? So so you know we've done a lot of work, a lot of really innovative work has been done around affordable housing led by Indwell and and the other wonderful members of our of our overall group. Uh, and so we're hopeful that that hard work can still be pivoted and purposed for you know another year, you know for you know you know a different date. So so we remain hopeful, but understand we understand that all options are still on the table. All right, quickly then, in, in 30 seconds that I have left here, uh, what, this, the clock is ticking here. That's the concern right now. Uh, you know, the, the, the bid committee, the, the group has already said, look, at a, they've had one extension already. Uh, what's the time frame here? How soon do you have to get an answer, yes or no, from the province on this? So, so we would, you know, and, and ultimately I believe that the Federation wants to see positive momentum. Uh, and so I don't know if there's a definitive date uh, that 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 anybody is is being held to, but you know obviously over the coming days and weeks, getting greater clarity from the province will be will be necessary for both our group and the federation to make appropriate decisions. Uh, but we know that you know obviously the next few days and weeks will be uh, robust with activity, and uh, and we remain hopeful that you know we could resolve any issues uh, you know legitimate or perceived. Uh, that may exist, and that there's a path forward for 2026 or another year. But, uh, but you know, we, we think that the great work that's been done uh, certainly, you know, can be leveraged for the benefit of taxpayers, for the benefit of the Federation, the province of Ontario, the federal government. We believe that there is a, definitely a route forward that everybody can, uh, can get behind and be excited about. PJ, as always, thanks so much for the time today. We'll uh, follow the story closely in the next couple of days. Take care. Thanks, Bill. P.J. McCandy from the Carmen's Group, of course, and part of the bid committee for the Commonwealth Games. Of course, we haven't even talked about whether or not City Council is going to approve this, and that's not a slam dunk either, the way things go these days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are heading towards our Thanksgiving Day weekend, and uh, we've been told by our medical experts and provincial and and federal leaders, for that matter, uh, that uh, we've better not have large gatherings uh you know i know we talked about bubbles and everything else previously with COVID 19 uh but now they're saying no no that just immediate family in other words when you're going to have thanksgiving dinner sometime this weekend the people that live under your roof are the only ones that should be there not not aunts uncles cousins none of that stuff that they, they say because that could cause a super spread and we get to see a spike in this however the other side of that coin is they have not put restrictions in in some other areas so in other words you're not allowed to have people into your house uh, but you can go to a restaurant or bar where they're going to be perfect strangers, or you can go shopping anywhere you want and, and be b- bumping into strangers. But that, apparently that's okay. Some people are suggesting it's a double standard. Yesterday on the program, we talked to uh, Dr. Todd Coleman, uh, infectious disease specialist, about that, and he said, yeah, it's it's kind of confusing. You know more, obviously, about people in your family than you do about people in bar settings, mm-hmm. uh, and the messaging just seems to be conflicting with with what seems to be allowable which seems to be, I, I'm allowed to go spend money in public, but you're not doing that when you're at home, when uh, your relatives are over. So how are you going to respond to this? And, and are we getting a mixed message from the government? Are they confusing us more than they're guiding us in a situation like that? Let's bring Richard Brennan into the conversation. Of course, a retired uh, journalist who covered Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Uh, happy pre-Thanksgiving. Yes, Good to have you, you with too, us today. Well, Bill. Um, before I get into the Thanksgiving thing and the mixed messages, I, I got to get your read on on the, the the news that we've been covering over the last two days here about Hamilton's Commonwealth Games bid and the involvement by the uh, the premier, especially, but Donna Skelly, who's the MPP, who had delivered, I guess, the bad news. Uh, what's your What's your read on what's going on? Well, I've done a little digging myself on that bill. I, I thought you might. <laughs> the uh, premier met with uh, Fred. Uh, Eisenberg, the uh, mayor of Hamilton, and others from the uh, Commonwealth uh, organizers and at his house last night. And, uh, you know, of course, they, they talked about the Commonwealth Games. And despite what uh, 
Donna Skelly, the MVP, said that it being dead in the water. Well, that's not quite accurate. The, I know that the uh, everybody I was told left there fairly happy. The premier, rightly so, I think, is uh, because of optics. He's, they can't right now make uh, an obligation to fund the Commonwealth Games right now, right in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, that would just look bad. But I, I know that uh, the, the premier and, and others, and him in particular, looking at creative solutions to going ahead with the games. Now, how that might happen, I don't know. I did not get that level of detail. You know, whether they might push it back a year to 2027 so it doesn't conflict with the FIFA games in, in, uh, in Toronto in 2026. But it is, it is, I'm told by a couple sources, it is not dead in the water, as uh, we've been led to believe. Interesting, uh, the people that were there, and we, as you know, talked to P.J. McCandy in the last hour about this. He's a member of the bid committee. Uh, Lou Forporti, who's the spokesperson, of course, from Gowlings, uh, was there. Uh, but also it was Joe Mancinelli. And I know that uh, Joe has developed a, a relationship with the Premier over the last little while. He had been a longtime supporter of uh, Dalton McGuinty and, and previously Kathleen Wynne until uh, uh, the Wynne government tried to introduce some legislation that Leuna, of course, uh, the parent company uh, that Joe is the vice president of, uh, took uh, exception to. Uh, and he, he, he has befriended Doug Ford. It's a mutual friendship from what I understand. So I got to figure that swings a lot of weight with the premier when, when Joe shows up at that meeting and says, let's talk about this. Well, there's no question that Nuna has, uh, has the ear of the premier. No question whatsoever. Be it, you know, the games or, or be the LRT. Or LRT, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the LRT we'll hopefully hear about sometime this fall. But, yeah, there. I mean, the unit's taking, you know, and rightly so, a special interest in this in the games as well. And I, I, when I'm told this was a, you know, this meeting went well, to the point where they know they they've got the ear of the premier. He wants to do something. What that something is yet he can't say because of being in the midst of a pandemic. But I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, I, I, you know. I'm surprised to hear, after uh, Ms. Kelly said it was dead in the water, that that's not the case. It's, uh, it's, it's maybe put off for a while in terms of saying how much money the province is going to give it. But at this point, uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly not moribund. Uh, any idea about time frames? No, I don't. I don't have much more detail than that you know, in terms of... I just And I'm musing here more than I am what what was said there, but uh, if they moved it up back 2027, that seems to me to make a great deal of sense because mm-hmm. so that it doesn't conflict with the FIFA games in Toronto in 2026. I mean, 20, move it back to 2027. Well, the other element to that, too, is if they do bump it over to 2027, uh, hopefully that puts COVID-19 a little further back in the rearview mirror and maybe, you know, maybe we've moved on. Uh, the economy may or may not improve that quickly, I don't know. But, I mean, it might make it a little easier to look forward to something like that as opposed to, Absolutely. you know, we're, you know, we're treading water right now because of what's going on economically and, and emotionally, I guess, because of the COVID-19 thing, which which segues very nicely into what else I wanted to talk to you about. And, of course, that's uh, Thanksgiving weekend coming up and mixed messaging. Uh, and a lot of folks are some upset, some are very concerned, and some are just plain puzzled about what the direction we're getting from the Premier, from the Medical Officer of Health and others, about basically forget this bubble thing, uh, just don't associate with, with family and friends during Thanksgiving. What's your read on, on the Premier's message? Well, Bill, let me preface this with saying, when I was still reporting, I used to love to use the word scrambling. The government is scrambling on whatever, but it is perfect right here the government is seems to be absolutely scrambling on how to handle the covid uh 19 pandemic right now as we as we head into thanksgiving i mean i I need a playbook to understand what i'm supposed to do it 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 really doesn't make i think a a lot of your uh, listeners will agree doesn't seem to make a lick of sense you know i can i can i can't have more than 10 people in my home but I can go to a restaurant and sit down with 75 others. Yeah. Uh, or I can go to the casino. 
but you know, you can go to the casino, but they're talking about doing away with Halloween. I, I don't know. It's just, it's just all over the map, and, and, and it's confusing to say the least. Well, I mean, if you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday, as some people I know are, uh, you know, you can basically you can go to Walmart where there's 120 other people in the store with you and say, i got to leave now because I'm not supposed to be, uh, you know, associated. i got to go back to my house now where there's nobody else except my wife and a couple of our kids, and that's going to be it. it, it there's a double standard here, and I, I think that's what's got a lot of people upset. Yeah, a double standard, yes, but it just it, the mixed messaging is is what gets it's what gets me. It just decision. Make a decision here. You know, say okay. You can't. You know, you can't have more than ten people at a restaurant. You can't have more than ten people. We're suggesting that you know that you you know you don't go to the casino because there's going to be a lot of people there. Like, what is it? Tell me. You know, people are looking for some direction. Tell me what is best for my health here. Because right now, we're certainly not getting that message. I understand the the, the, the pressure that's on the premier right now. I, he does not want to go back to a shutdown. Uh, I, I think at the time, in hindsight even, I think it was still the right thing to do. As frustrating and as painful as it was for an awful lot of us, especially people in business. And neither you nor I are small business types. I mean, we can't even fathom the, the pressure that those folks have been under for the last number of months because of that. Uh, and I get that, and I'm sure he's saying, you know, I, I don't want to put that on them again. But at the same time, uh, you know, what about the, the the health of the of the community? What about the health of the province too? Are we putting ourselves at risk by going to a casino? I guess we are to a certain extent. But you know, in other words, if, if I'm going to the casino or I'm going to go shopping, I've got a mask on. I've, I'm washing my hands on a regular basis. Uh, some people I know are even actually still wearing gloves, and we kind of got away from that. Uh, social distancing seems to have kind of fallen off the, the tracks here. We're not a lot of us are doing that much anymore, uh, and that could be part of the problem. So, I, 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 as much as we're frustrated by this, Richard, uh, you know, we've to a certain extent got our own ourselves to blame because we're not playing by the rules that they've told us about. Oh no, no, of course, no, absolutely. And uh, I mean, here's how serious it's become. And there's pockets in Toronto, for example, where 10 percent of the people are showing that they're coming down with COVID. I mean, that's alarming. So, you know, it is, it is, you know, we're looking to the government to, you know, to solve our problems, and that, you know, rightly so. But the point is we have to do our part, too. I mean, 10%, like, are those people not, uh, you know, social distancing at all, or they can't because they lived in confined, you know, high-rise, high-rises? I mean, who knows, but. I'm, I'm not so sure. I know that what you said previously, that the premier is reluctant to go back to stage two, but I'm not so sure we're not going to head, we're going to end up there eventually. Well, and it may well be uh, after Halloween, which is another thing that apparently is on the table right now, too. You know, the kids can't go trick-or-treating, and, uh, you know, but, you know, like I say, you can go to casinos, you can go to McDonald's, you can do whatever you want uh, from a commercial standpoint. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned that what they're doing is holding off on this, hoping things are going to get better. And if they don't, I think we're going to find ourselves right back to square one the way we were in April. Well, we can wish and hope all we want, but, you know, everything says right now that it's not getting better, that more and more people are coming down with it, and and, uh, and it's at a surprising rate. So where 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 do we go from here? That's the question that everybody has right now. I got to ask you because a lot of the, the, the anger that I'm hearing from from listeners is is directed not just at the premier but at the medical officer of health, Dr. David Williams, uh, who's been a guest on this program. Uh, seems like a, an affable fellow, uh, but the criticism I'm hearing from doc, about Dr. Williams is that he's he's too easily bent one way or another. In other words, it, you know, he, it, I guess what they're looking for is a Tony Fauci, and he, I, I don't get the sense that doc, Dr. Williams has the same personality as that. Uh, do you need somebody stronger in that role? Do you need somebody to act as a spokesperson uh, who can, can give solid advice and stand behind it? Well, absolutely. I mean, we don't we don't need somebody that just parrots what the government wants them to say. We 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 want the do you want us the we want the honest to goodness goods here. Here's what's happening. Here's how bad it is, or here's how good it is, 
here's where we're headed, here's what we plan to do, and we're not getting that right now. Like, you know, we're seeing stories, in, 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 for example, in the Toronto Star today, dozens died before a nursing home plan arrived. You know, they were, they were warning the government, the nursing homes were warning the government in, in January that we need help, we, we need a plan here because we can see this coming, and we're not so sure we're ready for it. So that's the kind of thing we people want us hear from the medical officer health and say, this is where we're headed, this is why we're headed there, and, and at the end of the day, this is what we should hope to attain. And I think that's what the missing you know, link here is. Well, just as you and I were talking, uh, the, the province released the daily data they have on, on COVID, 583 new cases in Ontario uh, today, well, yesterday, of course. Uh, we're, we're trending in the wrong direction here. So, I mean, I think there's a sense of inevitability that this is going to happen. And I, I get people's angst about this. And frankly, I haven't talked to too many people that are going to live by those standards uh, come Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, if they're planning a dinner for eight or ten people, or they're, they're going to have eight or ten people or more. Uh, in their homes over Thanksgiving, and and you know, come what may, they'll have to deal with the consequences, I suppose. Well, I can tell you right now, Bill, it's just going to be my, my wife and I at, at the Thanksgiving dinner table on on, the, on Monday when we have it. We're not going, you know, to go see our daughter and our sons and their grandchildren and all that. We we just we can't afford to take the chance, and that's if I got a message for people, you have to remember. That you're, you know, if you're older or not even older, because a lot of the people that are getting are 40 years and younger, you don't want to take that chance because it can be very serious, despite what the uh, president of the United States says. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. We, we, you know, we're still getting mixed messages, and there are some people that are believers in everything this guy says, so they don't want to wear masks, and, and I hear that on a daily basis from people, uh, and they don't think COVID is much more than just the flu, and it is. You talk to anybody who's had it, and they'll tell you it's, it's going through hell, and it's not, by the way, you don't get over it in two days either, like uh, Trump is alleging that he has. Yeah. Uh, he, st- he still has the virus, and he's hopped up on steroids and drugs right now, which is why he, th- he thinks he's invulnerable, but uh, not all of us have access to that sort of stuff. And and the people I've talked to, and we have had guests on the show that have gone through this and suffered through COVID. It's health, and uh, and you you don't know how bad it's going to get either, because it will affect different people in different ways. So uh, you're right. The severity of I think the fact that uh, the, what I hear from a lot of people these days is, well, look, it's been around since January, and I haven't got it, so I'm, I'm probably not going to get it. That's not true. Yeah. There's you know it's, it's Russian roulette. You just never know. That's all. All it is. It's just. It could be your turn. That's what, and and that's what you know. We're trying to avoid is is by social distancing, you know, not getting you know going out there in huge crowds, wearing your mask. All we're trying to do is stop the spread, and that's what is necessary. I know people get fed up with wearing a mask. Okay, I get it, but you know, it's not that big a thing to ask people to do is to wear a mask. You're just wearing a mask going into a store or, you know, or wherever where a crowd will be. But otherwise, you're not wearing a mask. You're not wearing a mask around the house. You know, if you go for a walk with a dog, I bet you're not wearing it then nope. because you're not bumping into a whole lot of people. So this this fixation that people have that the mask is just the worst thing that could have possibly happened to them. Well, I'll tell you right now, Getting COVID would be the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Absolutely. Richard Brennan, retired journalist, of course. Uh, if we don't talk again, happy Thanksgiving. Yep, to thank you, and, you, to you and your wife. And nobody else, I guess, is going to be there. But <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the day, whatever, okay? Let's okay, talk again, you. Badger. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Vice presidential debate goes tonight in Salt Lake City. Alex Stone from ABC News sets the scene for us. One of the latest to test positive for COVID-19 is Trump advisor Stephen Miller. Miller is married to Katie Miller, Vice President Pence's press secretary. Katie Miller also had COVID-19 and recovered. And tonight, Pence, who has presumably been around Katie Miller, will be at the debate. Miller has left Salt Lake City now. Miller has mocked the plexiglass shield that has been erected between Pence and Harris's seats. The two will be 12 feet apart and seated. Alex Stone, EBC News. 
just one of the subplots of uh, the the controversy, I guess, surrounding debates. Uh, and we'll get into the presidential debate a little bit later on. That's scheduled for next week, if in fact it happens. Uh, with Donald Trump, of course, with his uh, positive uh, COVID diagnosis. Uh, joining us to talk about what's going to be happening tonight is Aaron Kahl. Aaron, of course, is the director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. Aaron, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Oh, it's good to be back. There's been a lot said about this debate, uh, the setup for this. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris, of course, I guess, uh, because of the reputation that she developed as in the Senate uh, with her cross-examination of uh, Kavanaugh and uh, and uh, Bill Barr, of course, uh, when they went before Senate committees. Uh, a lot of folks are thinking that, uh, that this is a, a non-contest tonight, but uh, Pence has been around a little bit, too. How do you read what's going to happen tonight? Yes, those were high-profile exchanges, uh, like you mentioned, and she got a lot of fanfare for those, although... Political debates are different than examining high-profile witnesses, and even though she made waves with her sharp questions of Barr, um, and she didn't support his impeachment, and you know nothing kind of came of that line of questioning, and um, Brent Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court where he currently sits, and so the ultimate impacts of those lines of questioning, some say, were a little bit overrated. Uh, Mike Pence is not to be underestimated. He's a former governor of Indiana, congressperson, he used to be a uh, talk radio himself, and so has a good sense of, of the media and what plays in, in public. And in 2016, I uh, didn't have much expectations um, against Tim Kaine. People thought that Kaine uh, would win, given the uh, laid-back kind of personality of Pence and the fact that he's understated. But uh, opinion polling showed that people thought that uh, Pence won the debate, and he's going to need to deliver another good performance uh, coming off President Trump's failure uh, you know, to move the needle in the polls after the first presidential debate. The I don't want to say the only thrust, but it seems the main thrust of the of the Harris uh, and, and Biden team or Biden Harris team, I guess, to put it in proper perspective here, uh, has been to, to hammer away at COVID nineteen about the the mishandling of that. Is that going to be the theme as far as she's concerned tonight? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, it works for them politically. It's uh, President Trump's underwater on his handling of that. Uh, obviously, his recent diagnosis pushes that to the forefront. Uh, the, the Trump administration has tried to do everything possible to to not have that be the focus of you know the, the last month of the campaign and the debates because it's not their best issue. Uh, he nominated uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett on the Saturday before the first presidential debate, hoping that would shift everything to the presidential uh, to the Supreme Court nomination. And in some ways, it did. Uh, we started at the Cleveland debate talking about uh, the. That Supreme Court nomination, uh, but then, uh, ironically, that event in the Rose Garden, kind of a, a super spreader event that caused several members of uh, Republicans and Senate to become infected and then many people from uh, this, the Trump administration. And so it'll be the first issue discussed tonight. It, it's unavoidable. You know, these plexiglass uh, shields that are there that we witnessed, even if they're not talking about coronavirus directly. The fact that the two candidates will be, you know, 12 feet apart, which is you know, basically twice as, as far as normal, that it's going to be inescapable and be a sh- cast a shadow over the entire debate tonight. Now, I know, you know, you may say, well, you know, Mike Pence doesn't set policy. That's Donald Trump that does that. But he was and still is, I guess, the the chairman of the, the, the task force, the COVID task force, uh, which I guess puts a target on his back, doesn't it? Definitely. I think you're going to see Kamala Harris criticize uh, him. Running of that task force, I don't believe that they formally met in a while. They, the duration of their meetings has decreased. People like Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burke have kind of gone into the background, and they brought in somebody, uh, Atlas, who kind of believes more in, in herd mentality and is not really even a, a disease specialist, epidemiologist. And so, yeah, you'll, <laughs> I think uh, President Trump uh, put uh, Pence in charge of that, Um you know, to to try to you know change the subject or, or focus more on the economic recovery, that'll definitely be um, you know a line of attack for uh, for Kamala Harris tonight. These vice presidential debates, even though they're you know the two people um, on the number two part of the ticket, oftentimes focus on you know the main players. And so even though they're there, they're proxies for. There'll be fights tonight over President Trump's agenda, the future handling of coronavirus. And so a lot of times that's where the focus will be, as opposed to the you know the records of Kamala Harris in the Senate in California, a lot of the discussion will be based off of Trump and Biden, just like in the first debate. Aaron, how influential are vice presidential debates? Do they, do they move the yardsticks at all? I mean, there have been some memorable moments in, in past uh, vice presidential debates. Uh, Lloyd Benson, Dan Quayle, you know, you, know, you know, Jack Kennedy, things like that that stand out for us. But can they really sway public opinion? 
Generally not. And as you mentioned, those key lines uh, with Jack Kennedy or, you know, Hatchet Man, um, mm. going back to Dick Cheney and, and John Edwards, uh, you know, Sarah Palin, that debate got $70 million, But But historically, no. I mean, both the person at the top, you know, the vice presidential selection, uh, since Lyndon Johnson hasn't been very important, the debates are, are not as, as well received or watched. In 2016, 37 million people only tuned into the Pence-Cain debate, uh, where the first presidential debate last time got 84 million. Um, this could be different. Uh, the fact that the first debate was so terrible, uh, people clearly tuned out. The ratings were down. They didn't like the constant interruptions. They you know, want to go back to a more traditional political debate. I think they want to give this a second chance to see if the whole political debate process can be redeemed. And then the recent um, you know, coronavirus uh, diagnosis for President Trump, his recovery, the fact that both Trump and Biden are both in their 70s and old, and both of these candidates on stage tonight could be expected to you know, come in at a moment's notice. So people want to be reassured that if they if need be, that they're ready and able to be the commander-in-chief. And so I think this will be a little bit more uh, paid attention to and a little bit more important than your typical vice presidential debate. I think you're bang on there. There's, there seems to be more urgency to this whole campaign, president, presidential and vice presidential, uh, I think because of the personalities involved, certainly, but also the circumstance that we find ourselves in. I mean, it's it's been a long time, what, 100 years since there's been an election during a pandemic, and it's, it's really put a different swing to this whole thing, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, there's only a month left, less than a month now, to the election. Five Over 5 million people have voted. Uh, this is a very important election. The stakes are very great. There couldn't be a more, you know, more of a choice. The first debate really didn't move the needle. The two final presidential debates are up in the air, whether they're going to occur and in what form. And so, so yes, I, I expect a, a much larger audience, and uh, and this could be the final debate of the cycle, and there's no other issues you know, coming after that that could really affect the, the, the narrative. So if things are going to shift into a new focus on something, it's going to be tonight, and so that's why it is so important. Aaron, as always, thanks so much for the input on this on a very busy day. Appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Aaron Call, Director of Debate at the University of Michigan and uh, co-author of Debating the Donald. Uh, does have an influence on just about every aspect, especially the economy. I mean, we've seen that happen. Uh, even yesterday, of course, uh, when Donald Trump made the announcement uh, that uh, the discussion about uh, relief packages for COVID victims, uh, those who've lost their jobs and other, that discussion is gone. He's not, he says, we're not even going to pick that up again until after the election much to the chagrin, I guess, of an awful lot of people that are suffering, and we were looking for some assistance. So uh, the politics that's being given to us right now and the impact of the Trump-Pence team and the impact of the Biden-Harris team is having an effect on just about every facet of the economy, including the stock market, which took a dip yesterday after Trump made that announcement. Let's talk about that tie-in with uh, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? morning, Bill. Doing just fine, thanks. Donald Trump just loves to reference the stock market, and as long as the market is up, he thinks he's doing a wonderful job and everybody uh, is benefiting from it. That's not necessarily the case, though, is it? No, it's not. And, I mean, he's acting for reasons I don't pretend to understand. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. But he's acting, I've noticed, and I think we all have, more and more erratically in the last, I don't know, two, three, four weeks, whether it's related to his uh, becoming infected with covid we, I mean, again, I'm not a doctor, but I've read a ton of this as, as somebody who's a high-risk person, uh, that it does not only affect the uh, physical body, you know, the internal organs, but it affects the mind as well. I've read stories by, I mean, narratives by doctors discussing that. So I'm not trying to diagnose him from a distance. I'm just simply saying I don't know why he's acting erratically, but he is. And it's coming, and it's, it's affecting his policy announcements, which in turn feed back into the market, because the United States is the largest economy in the world, 25% of the total world economies, 195 countries in the world, one of them is responsible for 25% of the GDP. And so, of course, the U.S. economy is still the most important. Of course, the markets focus on whoever is the president. It doesn't matter who that person is. His name could be Donald Trump, it could be Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. The president will always attract an unbelievably disproportionate amount of attention. And so words matter. And so what he did yesterday in saying he was announcing um, the cessation or suspension of all COVID support was going to have guaranteed to have really negative impact on the economy because there's so many people who are hurting who and their support's running out. That's the part I didn't make clear. that Most of the COVID support approved by the Congress had a sunset clause 
and it's coming to an end for almost all of them, including the airline industry, both people and businesses. And so the markets reacted appropriately, meaning that they said, gee whiz, spending is going to go down, GDP is going to take a, a nosedive uh, because of the, uh, the lack of uh, support for these people who are uh, out of work. And, uh, and so now he's facing the consequences. The latest story in the Wall Street Journal this morning is, well, he's saying now, well, I might consider some temporary COVID support because he saw how negative it was on the market. Yeah, I, well, yeah, that glass is half full sort of thing, and I'm not sure if that's going to fly. Ian, as somebody who watches these things on a daily basis, and I know you read and read and read to try to get up-to-date information yeah. on this, are you at all concerned about the, the concern that a lot of people are expressing these days, that Donald Trump may not be of sound mind? Now, I know that's that's not a new story. They've yeah. been talking about that for years, and, and Mary yeah. Trump talked about that in her book as well. But as yeah. you mentioned, he's got COVID, and we know that one of the problems there can be some 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 mental problems. He's also, yeah. let's face it, he's stoked on, on, uh, on medication right now too i yes. mean steroids yes. and other stuff which can have an impact on that uh and like you say the u.s economy and to a certain extent the world economy depends on on whoever's in the white house being of sound mind and i'm not so sure that's the case now yeah i'm gonna sidestep it though in a in a, in a small way i've actually had these conversations as you can imagine with my students and with uh, colleagues and then media i'm nowhere near as um pessimistic as others are, not because I'm trying to defend Trump. I mean, I expect that he will be defeated, and properly so, deservedly so, in less than four weeks. My argument is very different. I mean, I've been arguing this over a very long period of time. I've visited the United States. I figure I've crossed the border in my lifetime over 500 times. I've lived twice in the United States on sabbatical. My sister's an American citizen who's been there for 40 years. I read every day religiously the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Um, There are so many checks and balances in the United States. And I don't mean the obvious one that we all know about elections. It's many, many more. The Congress checks and balances, checks the president every day. The courts, public opinion, the media, the markets. There are, you know, the Secret Service were publicly uh, condemning the president, the guy they're supposed to be protecting, because he went and did that little jaunt ride around the hospital. I mean, there are, it, this is not, what I'm trying to say is this is not Russia or China. Now, I know people know that, but they know it in a sort of a in theoretical sense. But there's essentially no checks and balances on Putin or on Xi in Russia. Whatever he says, that's the truth. That's where we're going, and everybody salutes uh, because they, they're afraid if they don't, they'll get killed, literally, exterminated. In Canada, you can get on national television, and you can say that president's a flaming idiot. You can say all kinds of things about that person, and there's no consequences. In fact, people do. You can go out and riot. You can protest. You know, you can write op-eds in the paper to your heart content. You know. So what I'm trying to say is there are so many checks and balances. There's checks and balances inside the White House where people are constraining him. So that's my first response to you. The second is we're four weeks away from the election. I think the market didn't respond more strongly or catastrophically, because they're discounting the fact. They're saying, hey, look, he's only there for four more weeks, and he'll be gone. And I know there's some people freaking out, saying, oh, no, he won't leave the White House. I don't believe it. Bill, I don't believe it. There are people, there are so many checks and balances. There are the Secret Service who will drag them out. There's the opposition. There's the media. There is the courts. There is the Congress. I mean, there are people think that the president is all-powerful, like Putin and Xi. That is not true. That's the way Trump would like it to be, though. That's the way Trump wants it to be. But even Trump doesn't get what Theodore Roosevelt did 100 years ago. The power of the president is in control of the bully pulpit, which is what he called what we now call a platform. He's got the ultimate platform. If he calls a press conference, everybody shows up. You know, he asks for television time, they give it to him. Uh, that's his power. He doesn't have absolute power like Putin. And, and so I think the markets, I thought they were going to react much more strongly. When they when the all, you know all support was suspended, and they didn't, and I then said, well, the markets are smart, lots of smart people in markets, and what they're doing is they're discounting. They're saying, look, it's four weeks away, Trump is losing by double digits to Biden, and I think Biden is coasting to victory, and it's going to be a decisive victory, so he won't even be able to challenge it because it won't be a one percent margin. I think it's going to be plus five percent margin in favor of Biden, and so again, the markets are discounting the aberrant, unusual behavior of the president. And they know that there's all these checks and balances that will, you know, and when Biden becomes a president, he can use executive orders like Trump did to reverse anything really crazy that he did in these last four weeks than he was uh, before the election. 
The only concern I think a lot of people on the counterpoint to that, and it's a very valid point, a number of points you made here, is that he's, he's co-opted a number of those checks and balances. You know, he's, he's got his guy in the Department of Justice, uh, yeah. the FBI and CIA. He's got Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who's a, a sycophant, will do anything that Trump asks yeah. him to do. Yeah. Uh, and he's done, he's stacked the Supreme Court now, too, with, with his yeah. appointees. So, right. you know, it's eroded some, not all of them, your point's well taken, but some of those things are, are really negated now. Bill, you're absolutely right, and I've, the people have brought that up with me, and I'm saying, look, there aren't five checks and balances in the United States. You know, there are checks and balances inside checks and balances inside checks and balances. The way I like to put it once is the United States is an entire society of checkers, checking, checkers, checking, checkers, checking, checkers. And that's just a sort of a, a snappy little colloquial phrase, meaning everybody's checking everybody else. You know, my sister is a minister of the Episcopalian Church, her own congre- congre- church members, <laughs> forget the other word, parishioners. Congregation. They, they challenge her, you know, well, we're going to have a service outside. No, 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 we can't do that. I mean, at every level of a society in the States, there are checks and balances. The stock market is a check and balance. It doesn't matter what the president says. He can't control the stock market. He thought that by controlling, you know, the, the head of justice and appointing more people to the Supreme Court, that he can control 330 million people. And actually, this is a case study that not even the most um, uh, power-mad president can control everything. This is not Russia or, or, or China where you can literally execute people if they don't step in, uh, stand in, you know, and support you. Literally, they execute some opposition members, and they do it in Russia. I mean, that is just so far from the United States. And like I say, the average citizen, I mean, they got the NFL running protests almost every day. I watch NFL.com because I'm an NFL junkie. They got ads in there all the time saying, go out and vote, go out and vote. They're basically, it's disguised saying, get out there and make sure Trump doesn't get reelected. I mean, yeah. it's throughout, it's, it's throughout the, the, the DNA of American society. There's checks and balances in every human being, every newspaper, every court, every person, and, and they're going to ride this guy out. He's got four weeks left. And then, um, and yeah, I'm not saying he can't do some bad things, but every bad decision, you know, can be reversed um, uh, be through, you know, legislation and, of course, through the executive order of the president, of the new president. So I'm, I mean, I'm not sitting here cheering for him. I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not as anywhere near as pessimistic. The United States is vastly more resilient, to use one of my favorite words. And, you know, these people saying the U.S. is going to come to an end and democracy is going to come to an end and fascism is going to come and take over the states. It's just pure hysterical nonsense. They will look back a year from now, six months from now, that this was just a very bad memory, a very bad nightmare. But he'll be gone. We can only hope. Ian, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.